fire, earth, water, air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then everything changed and the water nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Hello all, and welcome to episode four of the Distorted Reality podcast. Um, it's me, Madame Mellow Meow, just here to let you guys in on what's up this week. So, we are officially on every single platform I can think of. We're on Google Play, we're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on Overcast, and um, Radio Public, and you know, basically any one worth its salt, really. Um, so you can find the links to those by looking us up on Anchor, if you're not sure where to find us. And obviously you're listening now, so you found us somewhere. But, you know, I just want to let you know that there are options in case whatever platform you're listening on right now isn't the one you prefer. Um, regardless, it would be super awesome if you were actively subscribed to us, if you were liking or rating or reviewing or commenting, giving us stars, whatever it is that you do on whatever platform you're listening, would be really cool. Um, also, for some reason on Anchor, apparently people can contribute to us. They can, uh, hmm, Patreon sort of, except through the Anchor website. Um, We've enabled it because it was a button and we clicked it. Obviously, no one is forced to comply and give us money for a free product. But just letting you know that, you know, this is going to be a year-long project. And that's the actually big information that I'm here to bring you. Just kind of a spectating. So... This episode is supposed to drop on May 14th, 2021. Yes, we are in 2021. That's awesome. Right now, we're planning to drop one chapter of the podcast per week. The estimations of this shake us out to be done with book one of the thick. So that's, you know, fire instead of water, but, you know, the equivalent of season one of the show, by um, September of this year. So book two would then go from September of this year all the way until January of next year. Yeah, crazy, right? And if we continue with this pace of one episode every week, corresponding to each chapter of the podcast, then we're going to catch up to chapter... The Dying Banyan, only of April 2022. This is going to be a very long project. And we, at the moment, means me. Metamelmeow. That might change in the future. As I've hinted before, there might be a second narrator. Not really going to confirm or deny until we know for sure. But either way, that's a lot of hours that are going to be put into this podcast. So if 
you know, somewhere down the line, you decide, hey, this person's been putting a lot of creative effort into a free product. I want to thank them. That's what that donation button would be for, I guess. Um, anyway, you can contact us through the Distorted Reality Tumblr page, which you find by searching Avatar Distorted Reality dash podcast. So that's how you get in touch with us. Um, you know, Distorted Reality is distributed through Archive of Our Own. It's easy to find. The author is Bainthin. Um The Avatar characters do not belong to me. Yeah, that's that's it. That's the intro. Here's your generic ad, and then I will begin reading. Chapter 4, The Western Air Temple Author's Notes, 7-9-20 Minor edits this time around. The main thing was trying to make Bato a little more of his own character and keep Water Tribe culture in line with things I established later, and less identical to Fire Nation culture in the show. Sedna is the Inuit goddess of the sea. Disclaimer, I don't own Avatar Glass Airbender, and I am no way associated with the creators of the show. Book 1, Fire. Chapter 3, The Western Air Temple. <laughs> so remind me again where we're going, Zuko muttered to Aang, arms folded as he stared up into the sky. The Western Air Temple, he responded, staring straight ahead. He had no time for the slightly more immature Zuko that he wasn't really used to yet. In his dimension, Zuko was broody and silent, but a stable support for the group. He was strong and reliable. Here, he was almost like the Sokka that he knew. Thinking of one of his best friends, his brother, only brought Aang more pain. He quickly dismissed the depressing thoughts. This Zuko was just as prone to complaining as the Sokka he knew, though both of them could be just as moody, especially as his Sokka got older. Zuko often fell victim to Azula's teasing and tricks. His younger sister was a bit mean to him sometimes, like sh when she singed some of his clothing at the boredom. She didn't normally mess with Aang, though, and that was perfectly fine with him. She seemed to look at him as something she couldn't understand, and acknowledged him as much stronger than her. The only interaction they had was falsely polite conversation and quiet laughter at Zuko's misfortune. He did not want to become acquainted with her, he decided, because she was very real and very plausible to attack him when his guard was down. Whenever he looked at her, he couldn't help but see someone different. Something that could have been. He saw the malicious glint in her eyes and the evil smile on her flawless face, even when there was no such thing to indicate her ruthlessness. He was determined not to trust her. Appa groaned with a semblance of relief when they arrived at the canyon. The familiar heat of the Fire Nation felt heavy and suffocating as always. Small facts which oddly comforted Aang. The barren land below him burned with heat, and the air felt drier than it did in the southern islands. We're here, Aang announced the other two, looking back. Both siblings sat up and leaned forward with interest. I don't see it, Azula said, squinting. He's seeing things now, Zuka mumbled. Great. Well, this one's a bit different from the other air temples, Aang said. While the others shoot up into the sky... He flew up and down into the canyon, where the two siblings gasped. This one is hanging under a cliff. The temple was unchanged and undamaged from when he last saw it. The level buildings hung upside down, each underside of the pagonias holding thin, twisted trees and wild grass. 
He directed Appa to land in the main square of the temple, where they found a dried-out fountain by a faded but colorful mural of the sky bison. The pillars stretched from floor to ceiling, acting as a support for both. Aang gracefully hopped off Appa's head, and Azula landed cat-like on the ground. Zuko was about to copy her when Appa shook, and he stumbled to the ground. Was this place run by women? Azula asked, looking around at all the statues of the airbender nuns. Yes, Aang replied, joining her to stare up at the statue, her arrow still prominent upon her shaved forehead. If this temple was the same as the one he used to visit back at home, then there was really no hope for... Whoa, Zuko said, interrupting his thoughts. The swordsman opened up one of the thicker doors, and he looked down a dark hallway. There's a ton of statues in here. Aang and Azula walked over, and the avatar was pleased to see the hall of statues. They all lined up evenly and sloped downward. If he remembered correctly, this was the same hallway where Tio, the mechanist's son, crashed and his brakes stopped working. The statues were just slightly taller than the three of them, all depicting air nomad women, all of the nuns in the history of the temple. They're all women. There's not much variety here, Azula said, indifferent. The Southern Air Temple, the place where I was raised, had statues of all the past avatars, Aang told them. It's very interesting. It shows every avatar in the order we were born in. What? You mean like water, earth, fire, air? Zuko asked him, snickering. Aang stared at him, his face blank. All right, all right, never mind. I only said that because my brain was still all fuddled from the iceberg, Aang said, grasping for words in an attempt to cover up his past mistake. Iceberg? Azula asked, crossing her arms and staring up at him with a raised eyebrow. <laughs> Aang's eyes widened as he realized another big slip-up. Er, I meant volcano, he said, and hoped it was enough to save him. They seemed to buy this, but Azula and Zuko looked to each other and shrugged. Like I said, it addled my brains. He gave him a feeble grin that only fell when they walked off to continue exploring the temple. It wasn't until they summoned a tidal wave that the fires in the ship had finally been quenched. Then the ship nearly sunk, and all of the waterbenders had to use all of their power to keep it afloat. The ship was battered and in disrepair, and Prince Sokka was more infuriated than ever. He needed to capture the Avatar. His own public honor and status as a waterbender, a man, and eldest son of the Water Emperor depended on it. The ancient Fire Nation valued their honor and pride more than the Water Tribes. But everyone had their dignity. He needed his own to be restored. You could help us, you know, his grand said to him, dousing herself with water to block the heat. The men all look up to you and are loyal. You can at least extend the hand of friendship. I don't have any friends, he snapped. I don't need any. Ever since his self-imposed exile, his grandmother had always preached to him the ways of friendship and love. She claimed that the ancient water tribes practically bathed in it. He didn't need such womanly wishes. The water tribes before the war were such a primitive people. He, like many others, much preferred to be called the Water Nation. Their army wasn't much to speak of, but their grand navy was unmatched. Sokka's ship reflected his current status in the tribe. Smaller than most and made entirely of wood and stretched animal skins, while the more majestic ones maintained a coating of ice even on deck, that made it seem like they had been carved from a glacier, with blackened whalebones adding a wicked edge to the prows. When the ship finally dragged itself to a port controlled by the Water Nation, his grandmother had to go into his quarters and pull him from his naps. He had been trying to track the Avatar's course. 
She tried to coax him into going into the town and going to walk with her. Who is she to think that she, a woman, could order him, the prince of the water nation, around? She might have been the moonlit mother, but he was technically outranking her. I've no time for that, Sokka growled, quickly dismissing her. I have to stay according to schedule. Oh, well, I guess you can't come with me and buy all the seal jerky we've been missing, she said offhandedly, starting to walk off. He halted in his work, groaned, and let his head fall against his maps. She knew his weaknesses. After showing Zuko and Azula in the Hall of Statues, the avatar led them to the all-day echo chamber. It was large and dome-shaped, with many stone mechanisms aside to encourage the nearly endless echoes. It was one of the unique and entertaining traits of the Western Air Temple, built solely for that reason, but it was well known by the other air nomads. When Aang pushed open the heavy stone door, the grinding of stone against stone reverberated throughout the chamber, nearly deafening at first, until falling into a steady rhythm, until he closed it gently. Light filtered in through a hole large enough for a person in the ceiling. What's this? Azula asked. What's this? What's this? What's this? The all-day echo chamber, Aang explained. Echo chamber, echo chamber, echo chamber. The two voices mixed with the grinding sound, bouncing off the walls of the chamber. It's famous, 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 famous. It's obnoxious, Zuko said. Noxious, noxious, noxious. Okay, this is already getting annoying. Annoying, annoying. Azula laughed at him, and the teasing sound echoed endlessly, infuriating him further. The numerous sounds mixed together, getting louder and louder as they meshed and were enhanced by the apparatus in the center of the room. They all soon covered their ears as it rose in a crescendo. Let's get out of here, Aang shouted, which also added to the noise. They pulled open the doors again, slamming them as they all exited. I don't see a point to that, Zuko said, rubbing his head. I have a headache now. He seemed broody again, kind of like what Aang recognized. Let's keep looking around, Aang said to them. He still did not know what he was looking for, only what he wanted. He needed guidance, answers, a way to get back home. The moment Kana and Sokka stepped off the ruined ship, the water prince immediately felt a chill go up his spine. Only three people he knew could do that to him two of which he highly doubted would be in such a small port in one of the outer islands of the Fire Continent. I can't believe you're making me come here, Sokka said to his grandmother in a low hiss. I can't lose his trail. The avatars, right? She asked him absentmindedly, looking at his shopping list. He was about to respond and tell her to shut her mouth about his target's identity, but the person he hated most walked up to them at that moment. Prince Sokka, Lady Kana, great to see you both here. Clan Chief Bado of the Water Nation said, stepping up behind them, his voice personable as always. He was flanked by two marines in leather helms with twisted arms, as always, members of Bato's Buffalo Yak Clan. Sokka did not envy their choice of headwear in this heat. I wish I could say the same, Sokka muttered to himself. Kana discreetly nudged him with her elbow. Captain Bato, she greeted. Using his navy title over his status as chief of his clan was a slight to Bato, one that Sokka appreciated his grandmother for. What brings you here today? I'm a fleet commander now, he said, sounding slightly insulted at what she said to him, but boastful of his title. Anyway, I can ask the same of you, Bato said, turning around to look at Sokka's ship. 
or what was left of it. Seems like you've run into some trouble. Pirates? Or something else? He stared Sokka in the eye, both of their blue gazes having a battle of wills. Your father wouldn't be too impressed by your naval skills, or lack thereof. No, it was just a kitchen fire, Sokka said with a glower, his voice low. It got out of control. And don't speak to me of my father. Figures, your royal clumsiness and food hog was never a good cook, Bato said wryly to him. Perhaps he intended it as a friendly jape, as he often tried in Sokka's childhood. Sokka hated it then, and he hated it now. You are far too bold, Commander, Kana said to him, slight aggressiveness in her eyes. You are out of line. He is your prince. Show him the proper respect. Bato just grinned and bowed to him, while Sokka, on the other hand, felt ice in his blood. Bato mocked him, whether he meant it in good nature or not, and it was intentional. I apologize, Bato said, but it was obvious to Sokka he didn't mean it. I would like to invite such esteemed members of the Emperor's family to some tea and seal biscuits. This is my naval base now. I have plenty to offer, he said. Sokka was out to blurt out that he could shove his tea and biscuits in his own face, and that they were leaving immediately, but his grandmother spoke up first. We'd love to, she answered, shooting Sokka a furtive glare. While a good portion of the western temple was unscathed, the bison grounds and entrance to the temple were in ruins. He knew this was where the battle had taken place, an effort to protect the temple. Many Water Tribe soldiers probably lost their lives falling from the cliffs because there was no sign of any bodies. He wandered around silently, stepping through the rubble with the grace and fitness only an airbender could possess. He had seen much death in his short life. As morbid as it sounded, he was used to it, but seeing the destruction of his own people still chilled him. He felt the remains of it, almost as if he was there. But even in this world, he couldn't be there in time to help them. He had still failed the world, and that hurt more than anything. Zuko and Azula followed him as he searched the remains, keeping respectfully silent as he mourned the loss of his people. They knew what it was to lose loved ones. They eventually came to the most dilapidated building of them all, which Aang vaguely recognized as the remains of the bison stables. The door was blocked by fallen wood and stone and other debris, so he simply pulled his fist back and punched the weak remains of the wall through. It easily crumbled under his strength, even as diminished as it had become in this world after it got shoved back in his younger body. Once the dust cleared, the first things he saw were the dry, blue-leather chest pieces of the Water Tribe soldiers, their bone spears and other weapons sticking out of the ground all around them. But in the center of the room were the skeletal remains of one of the air nomads, a nun by the look of her clothing. He had almost expected to find Gyatso, but it still felt like a dull blow to his gut. He put his head down in sadness and respect for her, as well as the soldiers whose descendants he had once befriended. This woman had probably fought against the soldiers as she gave everyone else a chance to flee on the bison. It was a futile effort. Most of the ones that had left were hunted down or gone. Even in his own previous life, he accepted the fact that they were all gone. He turned away. He did not know why he had almost expected to see Gyatso, his friend, his mentor, his father. He had simply needed guidance, but he knew that the dead could not provide it to him. He shouldn't have come here. He looked into the sad eyes of both Zuko and Azula, 
both unfamiliar looks on their faces, and thought that it was a waste of time bringing them here. He did not even know why he let them leave their village. He still did not trust Azula, and this Zuko was much different than his own. He was still an amateur with his dial broadswords, and it would have been much safer for them to stay away from his travels and his business. They would just be a burden. He preferred to travel on his own. He would have brought them back, but he knew well of Zuko's fierce dedication. But he wasn't sure if the Zuko had any. And this is Zula's persuasiveness. They would absolutely refuse to turn down an adventure such as this. They were Fire Nation. They were passionate. In his world, he learned of Zuko's fierce determination the first time he entered the Fire Nation with Sokka and Katara, back when they ran their first blockade. A sudden jolt went through his spine when a thought entered his head. Crescent Island. That could be his next destination. But would he even be able to contact Roku without a solstice? Somehow, this time, he knew he had to get there, regardless, and figure out a way to contact his past life. Avatar Roku's temple would hopefully still be there, and if he had any spiritual troubles, that was Aang's best bet. Having an objective flooded him with hope again, one of the few things he had left to rely on. That was the only thing that drove him and his friends in the past. They decided to spend the night at the temple. They had a long journey ahead of them and often needed rest anyway. Aang spurred him on as much as he could to get to the Western Air Temple. They had set up camp exactly where Aang and his friends used to those few nights they stayed here three years ago. He found it to be another strange and unexpected comfort. The cool night breeze ruffled his clothing as he tended to the fire. He looked to the faces of his companions, both fallen asleep. They were still new to this, he reminded himself. They needed to rest. His own younger body got tired fairly easily. He could still not get over the changes of getting younger again. He was shorter, bald, and his voice was still annoyingly high. He would have to go through puberty again. Fortunately, he discovered before, this huge disfigurement on his back was gone. That was why he was able to enter the Avatar state back near Zuko and Azula's village. He still couldn't believe that the person who had caused the rugged scar on his back slept peacefully right in front of him, with no memories of ever doing it to him. The Avatar leaned against the wall, tucking his knees up to his chin and resting his head there. His eyelids drooped. His vision became blurry. For a moment, he thought he saw Momo dancing in front of the flames, before darkness obscured his sight. Kana shoved the seal biscuit into her mouth, savoring the flavor. It was not as she used to make them, but it was still delicious. Bato stared at her with a look of distaste, while Sokka looked slightly embarrassed. But for the most part, they ignored her as they talked. So, have you had any news of the Avatar? Bato asked, taking a sip of his tea. The whole time, the clan chief wore an unnerving smirk that suggested he knew something Sokka didn't. That's why you left the South Pole, isn't it? Nothing, the fallen prince muttered, taking his own sip of tea. The other water tribesmen let out a low, bellowing, almost boastful laugh. Sokka, Kana, and the two guards stationed at the entrance of the tent looked up at him. <laughs> Figures you wouldn't find anything. Unless you're lying about something, he asked, once his laughter subsided. Even your father knows it's a fool's errand. He doesn't know why you're so intent on this. You're smarter than this, Sokka. We all know it. Why don't you just come home? 
No, Sokka nearly growled in response. I haven't found anything, and I'm not going home yet. Well, that's too bad, then. Some of my own men are out searching for him now. Following your own mapped routes, Bato said offhandedly. Sokko stood up, his face hot with anger. You won't lay a hand on him, he threatened, holding his club out. How dare you force your way onto my ship? Kana stayed silent. No man boarded another ship without permission. It was tantamount to trampling over his pride and calling his manhood into question. A woman butting into this would only make the situation worse for Sokka. Is that a challenge? Bato asked, his brow furrowed. Yes, I challenge you to Sedna. When Aang awoke the next morning, he found himself in the same exact position he was the night before. The other two had already woken. Azula practiced with the fire left over from their camp, making it dance through the air not far from him. Zuko sat in front of the remains, sullenly eating a cold breakfast. Aang watched Azula bend the fire through the air, working on her control over the flames. It was so odd to see her so inexperienced with her bending. She was far from the cruel, vicious, master firebender that he knew. Sweat formed on her brow as she moved through the motions, not even noticing as the avatar watched her. When she finally did turn around to see him, she abruptly separated the flames and let them dissipate into nothing. There's somewhere else we still need to go next, Aang told them. We're leaving soon. The two looked a little miffed to be told like that, but neither of them did anything. Well, I might as well tell you that we've had a little spy while we were here, Azula said to him, a hand on her hip. Aang froze. Who followed them? Was it an enemy? He stood on guard. Azula pointed up at one of the raptors. Aang followed her finger, and up above he saw a tiny white head flinch back into hiding. His mouth dropped open. He propelled himself up there with a burst of air to get a better look. The creature, alarmed, dropped off of its wooden beam and flew down into their camp. It glided right above a startled Zuko, and then it swooped up, flapping its leathery wings to get away from the one chasing it. Hey, wait a minute, little lemur! Aang called out, overjoyed at the thought of reuniting with his friend. The idea of seeing Momo again lifted his spirits more than anything else since coming to this world. We won't hurt you! Zuko, toss me some food! Zuko fumbled, but he quickly threw him a slightly bruised peach to the airborne Aang. He deftly caught it. Come here, little lemur! I have some food for you! He quickly cornered the slightly lower cre slower creature, and then offered the fruit in his hand. The lemur's ears flattened against his head. Aang gently placed the peach down and rolled it over. It fell back on its haunches, shy and afraid, but wearily crept up to the food and took a hesitant bite. The lemur seemed to enjoy it. Aang grinned. Lemurs were easy to win over if you had a little food. As he watched it happily nibble on the fruit, his spirits dropped abruptly. This wasn't Momo. The ears were shorter, he noticed. Some of its patches of fur were darker. The tail was longer. The lemur itself was smaller than Momo. With a start, he realized she was a girl. They tended to be more timid in addition to those other physical traits and a more pointed snout. He knelt down next to her. Hey, little one, he cooed softly and sadly to her. She focused her big, round eyes on him inquisitively, then scampered up onto his shoulder. She must have been alone, he thought. The females never came out of hiding unless there was nothing left for them. She was desperate for companionship. I'll name you Sabashi, he declared. You're just like me, he added quietly. She purred softly. What? 
You're keeping it? Zuko asked him, surprised. Whatever. I'm not cleaning up after it. Aang rolled his eyes at him. Don't worry, I won't expect you to. Just as long as you don't try to eat her. You can eat those? Azula asked, staring at Sabi with distaste. There's hardly any meat on her. Sokka stared at his opponent upriver. Bato's eyes narrowed at him, as if trying to figure out Sokka's motives. Both stayed silent, neither of them moving except to use water bending to maintain their positions on the river. The city they were in lacked any fordnal Senna arenas, so the two combatants had to adapt to the situation and fight next to the closest river. Sokka's grandmother and some of Bato's men watched. A Sedna was a form of duel between two warriors within canoes. The challenger always had to start downriver, a significant disadvantage to deter a Sedna from happening as encouragement for the two men to resolve their dispute peacefully. Despite being a nation with an appetite for war, a sense of community was prized among their people. A challenge for Sedna was always taken seriously. Don't you remember how your last duel ended? Bato asked, eager to egg him on. What a horrible day that was. I've noticed you wear your token from that occasion with pride. Why don't you use an eye patch or something? Maybe you'd like one to match, Sokka growled at him, his scar twitching. The last time, he did not engage in Sedna. That was a simple waterbending tool, pure and brutal, with no canoes involved. Circumstances behind that one have been different. Bato scowled. You've no desire to back out of this, do you? We never received the blessings of the spirits for the Sedna. I don't need any spirits, Sokka said. You're just being a coward. I know you never cared about spirits either. For the first time, Bato seemed truly angry. While it may have been true that Sokka, Hakoda, and Bato never put much stock in spirits, Bato still had an image to uphold as the chief and fleet commander of many other men who likely were more spiritual. If Bato's men thought he wasn't devout enough, then why would the spirits give him and his campaigns any good fortune? Your father will hear of the sacrilege. Yeah, yeah. Remember what I've taught you, Prince Sokka? Kano whispered, just loud enough for Sokka to hear. Water rose with Sokka's hands, which he brought together and held at his side, freezing it together into one long lance. He held the lance under his arm while thrusting the other hand behind him, using that hand to propel his canoe while the other pulled up ice spikes and launched at Bato. With the flick of his hand, Bato brought up a small wall of water to absorb the blow and pushed himself at Sokka. Sokka's whips lashed out at him, but Bato deflected the attacks with swift movements, exerting little energy. Sokka scowled as Bato formed an ice lance of his own, and the two converged on each other, forming shields at the last second that cracked their lances in two. Sokka managed to cover his face, protecting it from the shrapnel. The older, master waterbender stood and balanced, his face dashed with anger. Bato hurled javelins at Sokka before their next joust, but the prince deflected them with his own icy weapons. Others were dodged or blocked completely by water. The current became tumultuous as Sokka's canoe approached Bato's again, so he focused on calming the waters and bending the river's flow to his will. Their canoes sailed side by side down the river, and Sokka took the chance to try and topple Bato's over with a wave, but he raised his canoe over it, then swept out with his old sword of ice. The gash cut across Sokka's stomach. He winced, feeling blood flow, but it was shallow. Sokka held out his hands and slowed his movement. Bato took this chance to hurl another ice javelin at him, which grazed his right shoulder. He grunted in pain. He's winning, Sokka thought. I need to come back. I need a chance to defeat him. Kana warned him after he declared his challenge. Sokka was well below the status of a master, 
but he had to try. Water dripped from Vato's soaking wet form as he grinned in triumph, as if he had already won. Hastily coming up with an idea, Sokka blew icy breath at him. Vato's clothes frosted over. His hair became coated in icicles. He tried moving, but cracking sounds came from his arms and legs, and Sokka took the opportunity to pull ahead of him, as if in a race. Vato growled, his eyes turning to slits. He shot his hand forward, slamming Sokka in the back of the head with a sphere of water. While Sokka was disoriented, the water underneath his canoe swelled and lifted the canoe out of the river, toppling and pouring him out onto the rocky shore. The frost melted off of Vato's body as his canoe moored, and he stepped off of it in one smooth motion. He stood victoriously over Sokka, poised to kill him. Sokka glared at him, daring him to do it. He wanted his shame to end. You're finished, Vato declared. But I won't kill you out of the respect and brotherhood between both of our families. I enjoyed humiliating you, though. I want to do it further, to show your father you're not worthy to be a successor. He turned and began to walk away, his voice gaining in volumes their audience could hear. The spirits have spoken. Your challenge of Sedna, the ice joust, has failed. Kill me, you coward! Sokka shouted at him. Vato stopped and walked away, and turning to face him. You call me coward? I defeated you in a fair fight that you initiated. Maybe I should make your face a little more symmetrical, if you're insisting. Water blinked through the air, slashing towards Sokka, but even as he winced in anticipation of the attack, he felt the ice shift underneath him, submerging him in water until he came up at his grandmother's side. It took him a moment to realize that watery arms had pulled Sokka into the water and then shot him out of the other side of the river, into his grandmother's arms. Need your dear old grandmother to protect you? Watto taunted, his voice laced with cruelty. You are a weakling. Not even worth my time. Farewell, Lady Kana. He and his men walked away. Sokka glared up at his grandmother. Why did you do that? He yelled at her. You interfered. I saved you. You are too young to throw your life away, she said to him. Besides, do you want to die at the hands of a man as low as him? A clan chief? scrounging for your father's scraps? Sokka hung his head in shame. Bato had defeated him, his second loss. But what else should he have expected? Bato was a waterbending master. He was not. It was as simple as that. But I'm still proud of you. I enjoyed watching your fight. You did wonderful, far better than I would have expected. It was very clever to freeze his limbs. Sokka barely listened to her patronizing words as he stared into the raging river, continuing its flow now as it was unimpeded by the two waterbenders. He had only one thought in his mind. He needed to get stronger. He would have to pull all of his time and effort into gaining strength to one day be strong enough to defeat Bato and the Avatar. Now, it seemed, he had competition for his prize. Aang leaned back against Appa as they flew through the noonday sky, his new friend Sabashi clinging to his shoulders. They left the Western Air Temple behind them. On the horizon was more adventure, more days to be spent with his enemy. But he was prepared and determined to get home, back to his own world, where things were right. Their next destination was Crescent Island, home of the Temple of Roku. Author's Notes The all-day echo chamber is real, and mentioned in the Western Air Temple episode, as well as the Hall of Statues, and Tio's accident. Closing Remarks 
Hello, it's me, Madame Melamiao again. Just wanted to say thank you for listening. Um, appreciate you taking the time to, well, you know, actually listen to the whole thing. Hopefully, we're getting a little better with accurate voices, or at least consistent ones. So, you know, if you liked it, if you think that we're improving, that'd be cool to give a review about it. I'm not trying to be pushy. This is just how podcasts work. You ask for reviews. It's a thing. Anywho, thank you for listening. Yes, this is me thanking you again, because there's a very small listener pool right now. So I want to let everyone who's listening know that we appreciate you. Find us on Tumblr at avatar distorted reality dash podcast dot tumblr dot com. And uh, feel free to send us an ask if you have any questions about you know, well, anything. See you next week.